More questions than answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Julie Panessi, the Pandemic Ethics Scholar for the Democracy Fund. I know that some of you will know my story, being fired from Western University for failing to comply with their COVID policy, but I'm not here to talk about that today. I'm here to speak with someone who faced a very similar fate to mine at Western. Uh, Harry Wade was an engineering student at Western University and he was put into handcuffs, taken out of his classroom on numerous occasions for refusing to disclose his vaccination status and or refusing to wear a mask. I sat down with Harry to chat about what happened to him, what he, what some of his, his reasons were at the time, and where he's at these days now that he's had a little bit of distance from the situation. I found, and I think you will find Harry to be a very intelligent, thoughtful, uh, reflective person who has been thinking a lot, not just about his own circumstances, but about how this pandemic situation came to be and what the experiences are of each of us going through it. Hear what he has to say. Let's talk a little bit about what happened on that day that ended up getting recorded in the video, just for people who uh, don't know about it, but then also people who have seen it um, and don't know very much about, you know, what led up to it or the circumstances. It's always so important to remember, isn't it, mm -hmm. that when we see an image of something or a video, that it's a snapshot of reality, take it out of context. And we need to exactly. be very careful to understand, try, try our best, right, to understand what led up to that and what were the circumstances surrounding it. And, and I actually, um, so I saw that video, I think someone shared it with me. I didn't know about you prior to that. Um, and I started, you know, thinking that we, we would have this conversation. I started doing a little bit of research and then I kind of caught myself because I wanted not to know anything about you that I would learn from the internet. And I just wanted to hear your story. So what I saw was a video that was either, I think it was recorded on November 11th. Is that right? That was a Thursday right. here. Um, and it looks like you are being arrested in a classroom at Western. Um, mm -hmm. There's some other notable things about that, the, the visuals in that uh, video as well. But can you fill out a little bit of background in terms of what led up to that? What happened in that moment? Why was it mm -hmm. caught on camera? You know, those sorts of things. Absolutely. So um, that was actually my third year paying to be on campus. I was in chemical biomedical engineering in 2010, uh, 2020 when this started. But it was a very competitive stream I was in. And the universities and society at large wasn't prepared for the first lockdown. So a lot of students were getting together in their dorms and writing their exams as a collaborative effort, as they may be doing right now as they've ushered in once again, online exams. So I wasn't happy with that, especially in a competitive stream. And that's that's a subpar way of conducting ourselves and what are meant to be like the highest institutions in our country. So I wasn't happy. I wasn't content following through on that course of action in terms of fulfilling my academic goals, which is the tragedy for a lot of people. Cause I know a lot of people take advantage of the situation. They use these outbreaks that uh, coincidentally happen right around the midst of midterms and exams or they use that even the vaccine and experience adverse effects to dodge their exams academic obligations and take advantage of paid leave but i'm getting off track here point is i didn't want to be part of that and i didn't want to be and i didn't want to return for uh, fall 2020 uh, to receive again subpar education i don't know why so many people were content to pay the same sum but to receive uh, online learning in a new format, which they would have experienced if they uh, were coming from a prior year like I did, and to see that a lot of their professors were taking leave, uh, a lot of professors on sabbatical as well. When I was repeating my second year this, uh, uh, this year, it was the same second year engineering program, just a slightly different stream for the sake of variety and simplicity, because I knew I was going to be facing an uphill battle. But I still noticed two out of my five professors were no longer teaching from the previous year, and they had TAs or people from sabbatical. And as I've become more embroiled in this issue, I find out this is, this is a norm. There's a lot of professionals and opinionated people on campuses that used to hold these positions of authority stepping away. And sometimes you don't hear their voices. 
you mean since COVID started, since the lockdowns and this is what I, prior to that? This is what I've experienced this year. Mm. Out of my five courses, two of the five professors that I had classes with in 2020 were not here for 2021. Right. So mm. either I think either they knew and they didn't want to be part of the circus anymore. They didn't want to be perpetuating a false narrative or they didn't want to deal with the confrontations because some of my professors are still willing to go on campus and go along with the narrative, but they weren't willing to call the police on me. But others were. The same professor that sent out a very sympathetic email in September about being in solidarity with the students during their walkout for the sexual violence that was going on in the residences. Right. In his statement, he said something along the lines of, uh, we respect and we have no tolerance for sexual violence. Uh, Western is a campus of inclusivity, respect, and tolerance. And uh, obviously, <laughs> this was this, and that was the same professor that called the police on me during my first arrest. Technically, my second arrest, but the first arrest that was on camera, because the Western was trying very hard to keep this under wraps. They didn't want the students knowing that their own peers were being barred and excluded from the classroom which was the experience. And what I tell people is that I was expelled because I wouldn't disclose, but I was arrested because I drew attention to that issue. That is the short of it because they arrested me outside my class on November 10th, the day before. They caught me outside and they thought that would be enough to intimidate me. But I made sure on November 11th, which was the first day, and then again on November 15th, which was the following Monday that my classes weren't guided, weren't guarded with the assurance of my peers in the room who are still in class right now, uh, made sure that I was still able to attend the class. And I got in and the professors, uh, the precedent was set based on how the first professor reacted to my maskless face in the classroom. And then the, one of the professors that I thought had more sympathy, more courage on the issue, decided he also had to call the police as well. Uh, campus police, the special constable service on the so Monday. Here you were, um, so you were arrested for not wearing a mask. Was that specific? Well, that's not the specific charge, not at all, but that's exactly what's going that's on. That's what drew attention. Exactly. I tell people, like, I was barred from entering the campus on October 13th, but they didn't guard my classes then. They didn't start issuing arrests then. Why is that? And that's because they thought I would give up and I would continue not to attend classes. Uh, or I would, I would decide not to attend classes. And then on October 28th, it took away my OWL access, which meant that I couldn't do my assignments or look at my course content, review my grades. And again, they must have assumed that that would have been an indication to me to give up, but I didn't. And I kept going to class. After reading week, I asked one of my trusted professors, like, hey, is there anything I can do? And his hands were tied. He received direct instructions from above that he wasn't to cooperate with me and to report if I was in the classroom, which he wasn't willing to do, thankfully. Ah. Uh, but it left me with very little choice. So all that was left for me to do, and I decided was to ask if my peers thought this was okay. And I was having conversations uh, with them up until that point. But what changed was that I wasn't going to wear the mask anymore. But I would bet you anything, and there may be still people like that on campus at this very moment, that if I continue going to class wearing a mask, nobody would have taken notice because the unit... The professors would have had deniability. They would have said they weren't aware I was in the class because most of the people in the room weren't aware that I was being barred from the classroom. But once I took that mask off, I was, I was making a statement. I was sending a message. And within a day of after starting to do that, they decided to start posting uh, special constables outside my classroom. And you were conspicuous then, right? Visual visibly conspicuous. And, and indicating by not mask wearing, presumably, mm -hmm. that you no longer were wearing the uniform of this narrative. Right? Exactly. I drove through campus maybe maybe three or four weeks ago now. It was a beautiful fall day. It was on a weekend. And you know how many students are around on a weekend walking around campus. You know, there are maybe 50 or 100 feet between them, right? There aren't many. And they were all wearing masks. And, and you see this a lot now. And when I was um, in your position, so 20 years ago or so, um, <laughs> my recollection of people in their eight, you know, teens, late teens and early 20s is not that they were a terribly risk averse bunch, right? I mean, uh, the opposite would be true, if anything. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's very interesting to me that things have changed so much in a relatively mm -hmm. short 
period of time. One thing that was very noticeable to me in that video is how calm and normal the classroom seemed while this thing, an arrest with handcuffs and police and, and um, neon colored vests is not, you know, I've taught in a university setting and been in university for 25 years or something. I've never seen that. This is an unusual event, right? Mm -hmm. um, but for there to be so much calmness and normalcy, no one did anything, no one said anything. Someone mm -hmm. thought to record the event. Um, did that surprise you? Or is this not surprising behavior from your peers and mm. fellow students? Um, I'm not surprised by the reaction of my peers. And the video doesn't capture the whole story, obviously. There's dialogue between me and the special constables. And there is a silent majority in that room that are filming for different reasons other than the principal footage you've seen. I haven't seen that footage surface, but people willing to record it themselves are issuing statements during the moment saying that it goes against our charter, it violates our freedoms, and they are taking a stance. But I haven't heard them since. And I don't know if anyone's going to be willing to acknowledge those people in the room, but I know who they are. And I can get in touch with them now and they know where I am if they want to reach out to me. But I guess shortly afterwards, everyone in the room had a change in attitude because the same people that were supporting me said that they were going to prevent this from happening and they were going to continue helping me find my way into the classrooms went silent and i have no i have no reason to understand why that is and i can only speculate that they've been issued some kind of warning uh, as the special constables told me that any students uh, cooperating or endorsing my actions could face the same sort of uh, actions so students have received that, emails to that effect i'm just speculating mm -hmm. that's what the special constables told me right is that they i told them that there are people in that classroom in that classroom that are helping me get to my classes making sure they're not guarded and they told me that if we find who those people are then we're going to make sure that they same face the same kind of repercussions that you're facing as well so i don't know if that warning was passed along to them but universe the the campus has the resources to find these people unfortunately for my fourth arrest my most recent arrest when i was just talking in an open forum outside in public inviting the students to come out and speak to me and voice their concerns or whatever opinions they had i was just trying to get an accurate picture of the sentiment of campus even if they even if that meant they held the views of the university i think society at large deserves to know what kind of leaders we're going to have that think that I'm a threat to safety and that they're glad that I'm being escorted off campus using for forceful means. But uh, during that arrest, I was uh, arrested at subpar 20 minutes, which was the fastest reaction time we'd seen out of the four arrests I've had. And that's because, uh, as there were valid concerns at the time, that there is a UWO group, UWO group online of 200 or so students that are on issue with me and we invited them to come out, but a lot of them didn't because they knew there was informants, there's infiltrators and they're reporting on our activities. So university admins were more than well aware that we were organizing this event and they are referring to dialogue in these private online conversations about students reneging on their tuition payments or uh, how they're trying to find ways to override or undermine the system and receiving warnings from university admins and the uh, the Dean of Students, from what I've heard, that they, they are referencing these private conversations to bring, uh, to bring uh, disciplinary actions against them. So much of what you say uh, reveals some very interesting and troubling things about the culture at university now, and, and probably in businesses and in various organizations. Um, but when we think about university, um, if we don't have freedom there, if we don't have freedom of thought and the exchange of ideas um, and, and a burden of proof <laughs> there, we surely mm -hmm. don't have it anywhere in society. Uh, in thinking about your story, I've been thinking about the culture of silence. And uh, one of the courses that I've taught over the last number of years is a business ethics class. 
And uh, we always do a unit on whistleblowing. And one of the cases we talk about is the case of the Challenger disaster from 1986, right? That, that blew apart 70 some seconds into flight, killing mm -hmm. everyone on board. Um, and for those who don't know, one of the chief uh, engineers who, who helped to, to build um, the rocket warned NASA, warned his superiors and then warned NASA, right, about problems with uh, the shuttle in, in uh, sub-zero uh, temperatures. And those concerns were just ignored. And, and that's in 86. And I, I'm interested in whether, I'm interested in the culture of engineering. You know, we see at other professions, you think about medicine, and then you look at what the medical student cohort is like, or you, mm -hmm. you know, you think about law, and you look at what the law student cohort is like, and you can see those uh, principles and behaviors and, and, and standards of, of uh, behavior modeled in the young, in the students, right? Mm -hmm. Do you see that in engineering and training or what you, is there, is there, is there kind of a, a solidarity, a culture of silence? You don't talk about these things, you don't? <laughs> Well, they certainly give us the opportunity to. And the course that you're referencing is, uh, it was called Environmental Engineering Sciences. And, but what we spent a lot of time talking about is these more public domain issues, policy issues, and uh, societal issues related to uh, engineering with regards to climate change. And unfortunately, because I was barred uh, from entering the campus, uh, campus, I wasn't able to participate in these debates that they're inviting students to have, one of which that I took a keen interest in and tried my best to get uh, the responsibility of arguing against this was environmental lockdowns. We have engineers in my age group uh, debating environmental lockdowns. And we do this in the context of uh, evaluating other environmental disasters, uh, such as uh, Deepwater Horizon, the oil spill in Mexico, and other issues re related to indigenous peoples in Canada is not having uh, better access to drinking water on the allocated lands provided to them by the federal government and those kinds of issues. Uh, when we had those weekly classes, uh, the students were invited to raise their hands and voice their opinions on these issues. But what I found was that a lot of them were reluctant to. Maybe it's because we don't have the kind of leadership qualities that we want in these kind of innovators. Or, as I suspect, there's a lot of people in that room that have opinions that align more closely with my own than the university that are reluctant to share their opinions because they know they may face consequences, academic penalization or uh, ousting for expressing an honest opinion about how they feel about these kinds of environmental policies or environmental activism in the professional field, such as engineering. And I would have loved to have participated and bear witness to what kinds of attitudes we would have had. My own debate, which I didn't get to participate in, was uh, uh, the relativity of the oil fields in Canada and the future of Canadian economic growth, which uh, I, have, I have support for and I have background in because I was in uh, chemical engineering, like I mentioned earlier. So I had a bit of background in this, but I really wanted to talk about environmental engineering. But uh, while we were in this class, we were writing essays on these issues and I knew that I was facing these threats from the university about being trespassed against, being de-enrolled and being suspended and expelled eventually. So I, I took the risk of not publicly, but in these private assignments, uh, sharing my honest opinions on these issues, very honest opinions, ones that would have probably put me at risk if I was still enrolled in the university. And I wonder if I should share those with people now, because I talked a lot about things and I even alluded to the issues that I'm facing right now, because they had us review these films related to business interests, conflicting with personal interests. Like uh, there's this one film that came out recently called Dark Waters that was about um, that big chemical giant releasing chemicals into the drinking supply and all sorts of issues like that. And they want us to write an essay about how they feel about uh, these stories, how vulnerable communities are targeted and are comparatively vulnerable and defenseless against these huge corporate interests. And I made a very active point of pointing out that we are in the midst of such type of battle, that if we were in a situation where we were compelled and coerced into submitting to medical testing, medical procedures, that 
had very little substantive evidence to justify it, uh, would, we, <laughs> would we take the same approach as these activists depicted in film do when they become the heroes only after they've been proven correct? How, how do we encourage people to take those steps without the guarantee of being a public figure or having their own personal success? Because a lot of people are discouraged when they have to go up against these big names like DuPont and in our reality, Pfizer. How do we fight these companies, these huge corporate interests that have ties in every level of government, not just in this continent, but around the world? How do we encourage young people to not only fight those issues, but just to begin talking about them. And I started by writing about it and I actually got a favorable grade on what I said. So maybe I should bring that to the surface and start sharing that stance with people. You, you make, I think, two really interesting points or a point and a question there, maybe two questions. The first one is, is an interesting question to do with chronology, which is that it seems as though we herald these heroes who are whistleblowers or activists or challenge the heavy arm of, of corporation or what have you, right? But only after the fact, only once we've had some distance, only once the true devastating harms have been able to set in and are clear or we have enough distance from it so it isn't personal anymore. Uh, I don't know, but I think that's a really interesting point. And whether or not society or human nature is such that we can, in the midst of one of these crises, um, pop up, sound the alarm, and have the appropriate response so that we can address those harms before they become any worse. And then connected to that set of questions is the one about mm -hmm. what do we do? And I mean, is there any room for uh, whistleblowers, challengers, uh, activists like you and I? I mean, Western has something like, I think over 1300 faculty members and over 30,000 students. Um, two that I know of, you and I, <laughs> my goodness <laughs> dared to challenge the, the you know the, the policy of this institution and I, I suspect for a lot of people looking on they would take ours to be cautionary tales I wouldn't want to have that happen to me oh my goodness did you see what the media did you see what social media did to her did you see um and so these acts of anomaly right stepping mm -hmm. outside the crowd beyond the narrative looking at and questioning it. Too many, I suspect, uh, just, just bring wrath upon you, right? That there's no, there's no, there's no benefit to do, doing that. There's no reason to do that. And you, um, I mean, I've been curious about this for a number of months now, but I think you're suggesting that there are actually a, a number of people who, while they may be satisfying the terms of uh, Western's uh, COVID policy, for example, don't necessarily wholeheartedly endorse all of it, or maybe while they um, believe in certain measures like vaccination or mask wearing for themselves, don't feel that it should be mandated or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a very good question. What do we, what do we do about this as individuals? Because that's all we can ever control, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested to wonder what my answer, the answer to the question I was posing to students in September and October, which was, they thought it was ridiculous. They were on side with me, and I asked them, "Would you get a third booster?" And the answer from them at the time was no. But here we are in January where it's been highly recommended and classes have been made online until the end of January to allow people to get their first booster. And for now, these students are allowed to commit to their answer by saying there's no way they would get a third booster while they're given the choice. But in January, and, not so much, you're thinking. Perhaps not, perhaps not. And I wonder if they're gonna commit to that or if they were just willing to appease me. But what resonated with me when you were talking was, I've mentioned this a lot uh, when I was, reading all the literature that gave me my background and my insight into this issue. And one of them was uh, the selfish gene. And one of the cases they take a very long look at is this behavior among a species of birds. I can't remember where there's a debate over whether or not animals are selfish as the book title suggests, but it's not about animals being selfish. It's about the genes that they all share being selfish or are there truly advantageous evolutionary 
uh, advantages to altruistic behavior. Because what they observed is that some birds that detected uh, a predator would sound the alarm for all the other birds so that they could take flight. And this could be to their benefit because they could uh, confuse the predator in the swarm of birds that would take flight to flee this predator, or uh, they would be a detriment to their own survival because by raising the alarm, they draw the most attention and the predator would go after them first. And that's totally analogous to where we are right now. We are the two sounding the alarm, not for our own sakes. We know the consequences of our actions. We're doing it for everyone else's sake. I was only getting arrested in class to give my peers the opportunity to help themselves. And they chose not to take that opportunity, but I am not in the classroom anymore. And they have to, they have to honor the stipulations and they have to subject themselves to the predatory acts that these institutions, the university and the government mandates are now being posed against them. And they can decide for themselves whether or not if they want to take that evolutionary risk and sound the alarm for the betterment of everyone else or to go along and play passively. And I think the conclusion in that book was that based on a bunch of other extenuating circumstances, you will find a ratio, which I've heard compared to everything else. You may get 20 to 30% equilibrium of this many of this species of bird that are willing to sound the alarm for everyone else's sake. And what we have right now in Canada is around 10%, last time I heard, that are not willing to get vaccinated. And even fewer than that are willing to sound the alarm and be vocal and become public figures in this. But that was never my intention. And I think people that are willing to condemn me online and have a very negative perception of my actions are just, they're just venting their frustrations towards everything else. Nobody likes these lockdowns. Nobody likes these mandates. Nobody likes these restrictions on our freedoms. It's just a matter of you, do you want to hold yourself accountable by being complicit in these mandates or do you want to hold someone else accountable and that's the bridge that i'm we're getting ready to cross and that's why i think january is going to be a very interesting time for us wherever not people are willing to acknowledge that maybe this vaccine has not been as ethical as it's been reputed to be or they need to shift the blame elsewhere. To complete the very lovely analogy of the birds, uh, it's not just that those sounding the alarm are being ignored by their fellow birds, right? But in our current circumstance, the fellow birds hearing the alarm who are annoyed by it, think, what, what, what is that? What is that annoying alarm? Are com actually coming after and attacking those who are blowing the alarm, right? That's interesting. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I see this new chapter of the narrative growing and growing every day, which is that um, the fault of the unvaccinated, that we didn't end the pandemic a few months ago, mm -hmm. that we need to achieve herd immunity and herd immunity is 100%. There was an article in, I think it was the, I think it was the Globe and Mail just the last few days, uh, where they were talking about whether or not to impose, or it might have been CDC actually, I think it was CDC. Uh, they're talking about whether or not a, a national mandate for vaccination would work. And they asked uh, various professors, I think from Toronto, what their opinions were. And um, one of them said, well, it would be very hard for the virus to survive if 100% of the people were vaccinated. Um, I have not seen any scientific evidence to support that. In fact, my own understanding is that the vaccines are non-sterilizing, which means that, and, and the nature of, of the COVID virus itself are such that COVID zero is, is, an, is a pipe dream. Um, and yet, I think the fact that that voice, that narrative continues, and I've, I think that's trickling down. So a number of conversations I've had lately from non-scientists, just from um, people that you run into at the coffee shop or, or people that I sort of know uh, personally, uh, are have a developing sense of anger because they perceive it not only to be the unvaccinated, but people who, like you and I, Right, who are defending the 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 position of the of the unvaccinated or the position of those who don't want to disclose, um, as prolonging this horrific experience. Where do you see that going? You say January is likely to be very interesting. I mean, mm. you perceive that we are in a 
21st century lynch mob burning witches at the stake situation. Exactly. And I implore everyone at Western who, <laughs> as a university that's known for its social programs, to educate me because I am just a layman and I'm trying to get myself educated on this now. The book I'm reading right now is called The Fourth Turning. And it's about how generations go through this cyclical nature of a crisis and then a redemption and enlightenment awakening. And then we're in the midst of this crisis and we can either emerge into an awakening or we can turn into a totally autonomous state, which we've never seen before because we've never been at this point as a species uh, where we, we dominate our environment, which is why metaphors and analogies comparing uh, our behavior to birds in nature while are very insightful and i would hope uh, to the benefit of a lot of people that are open to that idea uh, are more than willing to dismiss that because they don't see themselves as a participating in nature anymore i think part of the psyche of university and society at large space especially in a country like canada where we have seemingly state-enforced atheism we take our existence and our natural role on this planet and we objectify it and we break it down into its like most fundamental material aspect and if people want to view themselves and live their lives that way that's fine that's their decision but i have faith that that is not why we have been so successful during our evolutionary course i think it's innovation i think it's competition and i think it's a conversation and disagreement over ideas that allow ideas to flourish. But if we're not given the opportunity to show that uh, the unvaccinated or those who don't disclose aren't responsible for this crisis, uh, we that truth may never surface, unfortunately, because we don't have a plan B. We don't have uh, an experimental, there's very little research and funding that goes into alternative medicine and alternative theories related to this pandemic because they want this to be a one solution one narrative issue and we we, we, may, we may never get the opportunity to see what that different course of history is depending on how things unfold in this next month i think what's interesting about next month is that we're finally repeating we're at the same point where we were a year ago it was winter term uh with cases are going to rise because it's flu season this is the nature of viruses and people have to ask themselves we've done everything that was required we've been vaccinated and regardless of if you think whether or not the unvaccinated are allowing this issue to go on um ask yourself whether or not your vaccine serves a role in protecting you anymore or it's to your benefit so that you can enjoy the liberty and privileges of this country that were taken away from you. And it's funny that it was only until a few days ago, I finally had a conversation with someone from the opposition. Because like I said from the beginning, there's very little fight back. There's very few people willing to take the stance that we have a society seemingly all agreed to, knowingly or not. I see this in my fellow students. I see it in my professors. I see it in the special constables that arrest me. They don't have an argument. They're not happy about this. You can see the indecision and the doubt, but- They're just doing their job. Exactly, we're all doing our job, but I think people are doing their jobs for a higher power and they don't realize how much of a detriment they will be to their own survival if they follow this course of action because those are big ideas. Those are big notions that uh, people spend their whole life studying and that's the history of sociology, which is why I implore people that know better about it to come out and speak because I'm getting my very amateurish education on it. And we're at this point where we can decide to continue repeating the cycle because ultimately order arrives out of chaos. And the only reason we're the dominant influence on this planet is because we have lived in a chaotic environment that has allowed the best outcome, the, less, the best survival strategy to proliferate. But we don't allow for that kind of competition anymore. We don't give the unvaccinated their opportunity to live and prove their own stance on the issue. And that's how we end up in echo chambers. And that's why we're worried about losing our autonomy. But people 
like I was trying to uh, lead into earlier, someone from my own high school who I never talked to wanted to talk to me about it. And he claims to be right wing. He claims to be conservative. He hates the mandates just as much as I do. He hates government control. But he got this vaccine for the same reason I bet most people got this vaccine, because they want to enjoy life as it used to be. They want to go out and party and drink. They want to be able to shop and socialize without being stigmatized. I know how difficult it is to go out and try and participate in society with this giant target on my back. Even before I was on the news, it was very difficult. And I don't blame anyone, even people I'm very close to who support me, who choose not to be maskless when they stand next to me, because it's just so much easier. Because we spent these last few decades conditioning people with these social media platforms to have this <laughs> dual thinking of being individual and being unique and being outgoing and being brave and courageous whilst conforming and being complicit and being fearful of the repercussions of being ousted and being ostracized. Yeah, this is so interesting, Harry. Uh, you know, I often wonder this. It seems like what we're doing, the narrative that we're following, it does not even, even if you're an egoist in some sense and you believe, you know, that people fundamentally act for the sake of their own self-interests, it doesn't, and you offer a reason why that might be, because we want to do anything possibly in order to get the, the normalcy that we had back, our lives back, and be able to go out and move freely in the, in the public sphere. Um, but it seems like, in another sense, in following the narrative, we are not acting in our own self-interest. And we know from, there, there's a lot of ethical literature and, and psychological literature that suggests that in acting in our own self-interest, we don't always do what's in our best self-interest because we're narrow-sighted and we focus on the present or something like that, right? Um, so I do wonder often, what it, what is it that really ultimately explains why we might be self-destructive in this way? And just to fill that out a little bit, you know, if you talk about um, some of the, not only the harms possibly to do with the vaccines, but the harms to do with not, um, no, not being aware of the alternative uh, treatments for COVID, you know, uh, and the people who have suffered or have, who have been lost, right, from not taking the appropriate uh, pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals, but then we have the lockdowns and the mental health aspects compounding upon that. So in some sense, it looks like we're in a massive self-destructive cycle. And you wonder why would that be, right? Mm -hmm. So is it just, and one possible explanation seems to be that we uh, we want to conform. We don't want, we don't like social ostracization. We don't want to be uh, stigmatized, identified as being different or other. But a question I also have, and I, I would appreciate your insight into this, is do you think that in some sense, people like living in a state of fear? Is, is well. there, are there advantages to that? I mean, is there, do you have a sense of solidarity from that maybe? Uh, a sense of purpose or meaning or? Well, they're certainly not willing to admit it because <laughs> uh, if you look at culture, like, uh, no matter what your beliefs are in terms of what religion you believe in, if you're atheistic or uh, theistic, uh, what we see in all, all cultures, what unites us all is that we have, we value the same virtues. We all love courage. We all love honesty, transparency, bravery, and compassion. And those things don't depend on a God on any other belief. But those kinds of moralistic virtues don't exist in an echo chamber where there is no pressure to do anything. And like I said earlier, if you break your existence down into its fundamental atoms, there's very little compelling people to risk their necks because ultimately it is an advantageous survival strategy to blend in. And even if there's a risk associated with doing everything everyone else does, a lot of people probably soothe themselves with the idea that well, if there's a consequence to my actions, there will be a different majority that suffers for it. And they are willing to let them throw themselves into the fire first and then wait and see and then do the same thing as them. But in terms of how we, why people, uh, even if they won't admit it, why they're so willing to deprive themselves of freedom, including the introverts such as myself, 
I think when, like, for a split second at the start of this, I was relieved. I was relieved I didn't have to, they initially said yeah. in, uh, in March or April of 2020, like there won't be an exam. And I was relieved because I was having my own uh, uh, upheaval personally at the time. But then shortly afterwards, they announced exams again. So that was detrimental to my academic performance. But a lot of people uh, like it. A lot of people like staying home. A lot of people like that their opportunities are limited. And it reverberates very well with this notion that uh, choice is an illusion and that the freedom of choice is actually very, uh, very limiting. Because mm-hmm. uh, when people are given the option to enjoy life and succeed in life with unlimited opportunities, a lot of them are paralyzed with the prospect of having that burden of success placed upon them. Just like everyone else my age, my parents conditioned me and told me that the only way to succeed in life is to go to university and to have a career, have lots of money and have all these assets and affluence and big happy family. And that's that's something I aspire to still, but it's not the only type of success that can bring peace to people's lives. But that's what most people ascribe to. And when they're told by their governments that they no longer have to pursue these same careers or these same difficult uphill climbs into academia or professional or personal success because we have to do it for the betterment of public safety, that's a very easy notion to get along with. In fact, it's a very selfish notion to go along with, to say you don't think it's worthwhile for you to better yourself and benefit society and others by succeeding and competing and offering your individuality to the world. Let's all just choose to not compete. Let's all choose to be the same. And that way we can all live and thrive. Well, we can survive together or we can all suffer together, but at least we're all doing it together equally. But that's not why we're here. And if we pursue that, if we go down that road, not only are we going to disinherit the planet because there won't be enough innovation and breakthrough to ensure survival on this planet as we face real crises, like uh, not only these medical medical tyranny and other sorts of uh, government structures that impose these restrictions, but like real, real crises of the future, such as climate change in its own time and place. And all these other sociological issues, ideological issues and technological issues, not just climate change, but like world hunger, combining disease. Uh, How are we going to be expected to fight these issues when we are all forced to agree? When will we have our opportunity to disagree and and offer a viable option? Even though in all probability, it may not be the best option because 99% of mutations not just in societal behavior, but also in our own genes and every organism on this planet fail. But if we don't give that fraction of a percent its opportunity to provide a better option, then we're not going to be evolving. We're not going to be thriving. We're going to be stagnating. And then we're going to be languishing. We're going to be like that Petri dish of bacteria that explodes in growth. And now we're stagnating. And now we can either choose to find ways to continue that growth and continue to thrive and survive or we're going to stagnate and there's going to be a lot of suffering for it because while we're all at home content with being online and socializing on these social media platforms and getting along with the hobbies and passive activities that appease our happiness we're not facing the uphill battles or challenges associated with Uh, being insightful, critical thinking organisms that allowed us to dominate this planet to begin with. We're not going to ever be able to cure COVID or at least learn to live with COVID while we're allowed to, while this narrative is being pushed, uh, being insisted upon that this is the only way. Our our defunct vaccine that couldn't save us this last year is the only way that's going to save us as, as long as they're willing to accept it, right? I don't think people uh, realize how, how, many, how much profit is extracted for so few people associated with pushing this narrative. And if they can force just one more booster on everyone, right now that's a 50% markup on their profits. And if they can keep that going forever, they will. 
it's only up to individuals to decide for themselves what's best for their own survival. It's up to every single person and organizations and businesses what they need to protect themselves and the people they serve. And everyone should be allowed the opportunity to decide if they need to wear a mask, if they need to self-isolate, and if they need to take experimental drugs. This is so, so interesting. I mean, I feel lately like every time I have a conversation about the pandemic, we very quickly and interestingly get into this territory of a psycho evolutionary psychology and sociology and, uh, and history and philosophy because I think what's gotten us here is not a scientific issue. And what will get us out of it is not a scientific issue. And the advantages you point to, possible advantages to following the narrative and being locked down and in one's home and distancing and wearing the mask and feeling as though we're doing this for others or with others, we get that sense of solidarity. There's a lot of social payoff to that, isn't there? And a lot of personal payoff to that because mm -hmm. we, if we really are you know, living in an era it's a post, not just a postmodernism, but a post postmodernism, you know, some kind of nihilism where we've, yeah. we've been left with the, you know, the fallout from this post um, modernist deconstruction of, of, of all kind of all purpose. Um, my goodness, something has come along to give us purpose. We now have reason to wear a mask. We have reason to distance. We have reason to vaccinate. We have reason to do all of these things. And how richly does that fill up our lives with purpose every single day in, in very small and relatively simple tasks that everyone can accomplish? right? You don't need enormous amounts of money to donate to charity. You don't need grand acts of heroism. Everybody can wear a mask. Everybody can sanitize their hands, right? And in participating in those small acts, we are solidifying um, not only our place within the immediate and broader community, but our sense of the purpose of our own lives. But what's so interesting, I think, is that you point to the trade-off, with that, right? And that we are losing not only this opportunity to exchange ideas so that we can innovate and move the species forward, but we're really losing our humanity in that process, aren't we? We're losing our ability to think for ourselves. We're losing our ability. I mean, Aristotle said very famously that we're political animals. We're losing our ability to understand our relationship to other people, uh, what's required of, of citizens in a democracy, which is not required of citizens in, a, in a, some sort of totalitarian state. It's actually, you're quite um, bereft of responsibilities in a totalitarian <laughs> state in some sense, right? Democracy mm -hmm. takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of attention to process and not just outcome, right? So um, in, in getting this value out of our role in the pandemic, following the narrative, we also seem to be losing a great deal at the same time. And I thank you for articulating both sides of that coin so clearly and so interestingly. So let me ask you a final question. What's next for you, do you think? Where do you go from here? Well, I'm thankful that there is still a large majority of people that know better and they support me. And it's going to give me the opportunity to do this full time like some of the other big names that I've gotten to know just this last month. I knew your name before my arrest. Uh, uh, my family shared your video with me and that was really inspiring. But I didn't know about all these other names that we are both associated with that I'm learning about. And there's, there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of expertise behind us. And uh, even if people aren't willing to save themselves, we can't say we didn't give them the opportunity to, right? That's our responsibility. So I'm looking forward to participating in that. And I'm looking forward to feeling like an accomplished human being on this planet by being able to give people that opportunity to uh, save themselves. So that's what I'm going to be working on. And uh, my, I have excellent representation. And I look forward to the outcome of these charges, as I'm sure everyone else does as well. But uh, I'm going to be doing the same thing I did during the lockdown, first lockdown, otherwise, which is just uh, reading literature being insightful, invest, doing my own investigating, because that's what we're all called upon to do. And uh, that own, that's what's really gonna serve 
continue to serve me and that's what will serve others. I invite them all to do the same thing. Uh, I hear you have a great book. Someone I know, we both know, uh, reckons you can get me a copy. So I look forward to that. We're going to get you a signed copy. Don't worry. <laughs> Wonderful. I look forward to it. Thank you. And uh, there's lots of other books that I want to get around to reading and there's never been a better opportunity to do that. So I hope everyone else takes advantage of that. And I hope they're paying attention to what we're saying. You've done great work. You've done speeches. You have your video. And I look forward to all the other great work you're doing. And there's so many other projects going on behind the scenes that we're going to be working on. And we're at a critical stage. And I hear like a lot of whispers about stuff that may unfold during these next couple of weeks. So I look forward to that. And I look forward to preparing myself and others to uh, meeting the challenges of 2022, believe it or not. We are in, we're two years into this now. And I think we're finally at a point, like I decided this summer, which was that I can't avoid this issue anymore. I have to go back to school because as long as people are content to live at home and not exercise their autonomy and critical thinking, the gifts that we were given on this planet that made us special, we may as well be the cells that constitute our bodies. We are just cells that serve the purpose of the government at this point, the higher ups that want to decide for every single part of our autonomy, uh, how we choose to live and thrive. And I'm going to make sure we give that opportunity to people to realize that that will be a potential outcome if they don't start thinking for themselves and letting others make their own decisions for themselves as well. You know, Harry, I, I, uh, I remember seeing in one of the comments on your video, I can't remember if it was on YouTube or where it was, but one of your less uh, compassionate, I think, uh, fellow students said something like, if he doesn't know how to follow rules, he shouldn't be at university. And that comment just stopped me in my tracks because, and we haven't, maybe we'll have another chat sometime about, about education in the 21st century and, and what it should look like, what it does look like. But um, my thought about higher education has always been that it should be the, exactly the opposite, that we train people to be free thinkers so that they understand which rules to follow and why and uh, which ones to break and when. Right, And I, I'm very grateful to you for uh, thinking through that, coming to your own very reasoned conclusions and, 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 and speaking publicly so that others uh, have the opportunity to think a little bit more about this from both sides. So I thank you so much and we'll be in touch, I'm sure. All right, wonderful. Thank you. So nice meeting you, Julie. And uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for the chat. Very honest conversation that I think everyone needs. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs>